You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Today, I'm joined by Maggie Veers. Maggie is a a conscious parenting coach, and I'm really delighted um, to have her here today. I'm a big fan of her work on Instagram. So thank you so much for being here, Maggie. Thank you so much for having me, Kat. I'm a huge fan of your work as well. Maggie, tell us a little bit about your journey to motherhood. Yes. So I'm actually a Korean transracial adoptee, and I found myself like a couple years into marriage, really desperate to have some of my own biological kids. Um, and I had my first daughter. And then shortly after that, I had my twin boys. Two years after that, I had my twin boys. And then I had my youngest. So I had four kids within the span of about five and a half years. <laughs> Motherhood was nothing like I had expected it would be. Yeah, it was a lot. I had a lot of postpartum depression with my first um, and come to realize that a lot of that was just my own, I think what I believe is my own complex trauma that was just kind of exacerbated by this little baby that was in front of me. But yeah, having these four small children in such a small amount of time really kind of forced me into a lot of some of that inner work and reparenting work right away. Yeah, I can really imagine. I'm one of four children, and I actually wanted to have four children, but my own twins somehow finished me off, so um, I, I won't be having any more children. And so when I hear you have four children, I'm really in awe of that, in kind of in awe of what you've gone through and, and the strength it takes to have, you know, to have twins when your other child must have been like one, to really honor that. Wow. Yeah, thank you. It has been a lot. It is a lot, and it's all I know. <laughs> um, but yes, my oldest was two when when the twins were born, and that was I don't I mean I can't even really remember that time. It's such a uh, it was such a haze of a time. Yeah, I can imagine. And um, you mentioned um, being an adoptee. Thank you for sharing with us about that. That's that's a, that's a kind of a huge and complex thing to add into the mix of parenting. Absolutely. Yes. And I spent a lot of my life in kind of this, what the, what we call this adoption fog, 
not really understanding the depth of the trauma that's involved with um, adoption. Um, I was kind of under this guise of pretending that everything was okay, that I was okay. It was really all about the appearances of what things looked like on the outside, which also ties into this whole motherhood piece. You know, I thought that being a good mother was how everything looked, how everything appeared, that my house looked nice, that I had a nice house, that my kids were dressed nicely, that I was dressed nicely, that I did everything for everybody else. It was very much about how things looked instead of how it actually felt. Yeah. And I think that's such a, um, I have a different story to you, but um, I grew up in an alcoholic um, household and it was also all about how shiny it looked on the outside. And as long as it kind of looked shiny, then it doesn't really matter. It didn't seem to matter what was going on inside. And so that sounds like a huge thing that you've journeyed away from the way you describe that. How did you kind of even notice you were doing that? Yeah, so I think I I ended up really getting invested in this cautious parenting, respectful parenting movement. And that kind of became the portal for my own healing and unpacking and unlearning because I would notice all of these shoulds that would come up. You should be doing this or you shouldn't be doing this. And so I was really living my life through this lens of what others had projected onto me that I should be doing. And so it was kind of like I became aware of all of those shoulds throughout my day and then noticed those, thought about where those thoughts might have come from, and then really got back to what what I wanted, what my values were, and what was important to me and for my specific family. That's an amazing amount of insight that you're talking about to even be able to kind of get through your own kind of, because often we all run on like a set of um, thoughts that just seem to run automatically, which seem to be the truth. And so you're really talking about deconstructing so much by being able to notice what expectations you're putting on yourself and how they didn't serve your own family. Absolutely. Do you do this a lot with your husband or is it something very much driven by you? How does it kind of work in your family? It was with my husband also, but um, most of the things that were coming up were the things that I should be doing as a mother. Like I should be doing all of, I should be able to get all of these chores done. I should be able to get the laundry and the cooking and the grocery shopping done and have a clean and beautifully curated home. So I would come, I would notice that thought that should, and then was noticing that it was really just driving me to, I I was stuck in survival mode. So a lot of this was really on learning survival mode and learning how to actually be in the present moment. That was, that's been a huge part of my motherhood journey is really coming, learning to be present, learning to slow down, not constantly giving of myself, not constantly, you know, stuck in that flight response, which I had really been in for so much of my life. And then it's even easier when you're a mother to to stay in that because it's what society says mothers should do. I so resonate with that, Maggie. I remember when my twins were little, if I would go and sit down on the sofa in the kitchen, because we have a sofa in, a kitchen, in our kitchen and everything, 
then they would sit on me and they would want me to read or play and everything. So I sometimes remember just like hovering around the island just so that I could stay doing chores or somehow feeling like I was being productive and learning to titrate into presence has also been a huge thing for me. How did you kind of, because you said you had to unlearn being in survival mode, how did you kind of approach that? I mean, I also want to really highlight to people listening, actually, that you're an occupational therapist, so that you've, you've got a lot of professional knowledge in this space as well. Yeah, so I, I really have this understanding of the nervous system because as occupational therapists, we're very, we're very focused on a whole person. We're very focused on being able to do the things that are meaningful for us, those occupations in, in our daily life. Um, that are meaningful for us. And the nervous system is the foundation for all occupation. And so really learning to learning about the nervous system, learning about my own system and learning how to regulate it has been huge. Um, and so, you know, one of the ways that I went about this in the beginning was really just noticing it was all about this. I think that's the hardest part is the awareness, bringing awareness to some of these patterns, it's so easy to be an autopilot. So it was really for me noticing, oh, wow, I have not stopped moving for four hours. <laughs> that's, that's not normal. Um, and, and really tr and being so conscious of slowing down. So even when I'm making a meal and I have four kids who are, you know, pulling out my pants and telling me that they need something, it's so easy for things to feel so urgent and like it's an emergency, especially when you're stuck in this flight mode. And so it's becoming aware of those thoughts, coming becoming aware of those sensations that are coming up in my body and really accepting them and letting them be, not trying to resist it or fight it, but still continuing to slow down while I am doing these different activities. Yeah. The thing about our children is that they send our nervous system so many signs of danger. And so it can kind of act to be like, like an upward spiral, like a tornado, as opposed to kind of just trying to ground into being present. It's so easy to just kind of perpetuate that flight mode by getting away or, or shouting or, you know, or going into fight mode, actually. And I can even feel in my own body as we talk about this now, actually, and I think about what you just described, being in the kitchen with children pulling at you, because the nature of motherhood is so invasive um, from a sensory perspective, actually. And you, you often talk about that on, in your work. How have you kind of used that information to help you? Yeah, so becoming aware of my own sense, what we call a sensory profile, has really helped me make sense of my kids' sensory profiles, understanding their behavior. But understanding the things that I'm sensitive to and the things that, um, the things that make me feel good in terms of sensory information has allowed me to be able to tap into more fulfillment throughout my day and be able to understand how to accommodate my day with my kids. So, you know, for me, I'm very sensitive to auditory information and I think for all of us mothers, we're taking in way more auditory information, way more tactile information from, you know, our kids' screams and the toys and kids climbing on us 
It's so much information. And so for me, I'm highly sensitive. So being highly sensitive on top of the regular, you know, bombardment of sensory information as mothers was very tricky for me. So a lot of it has been learning to advocate for my sensory needs. You know, when when kids are climbing on me, making sure that I'm advocating for my own sensory needs, making sure if everyone's being loud, setting a boundary around that. So boundaries has actually been a huge part of this piece. And also realizing that when we're setting boundaries or when we are advocating for our own sensory needs, that we're actually showing our kids how to do the same for themselves, which is so important. That's so important. Well, that modeling is, I mean, that we learn much more from what our parents do than what they say, like we, we in everything. I also am highly sensitive. And so I have to really work to um, give my system input so that I can be present for what's going on in my house. Do you want to say a little bit about what sensory needs actually are for people who may be listening who don't know what that is? Yeah, so I won't go too much into the sensory systems, but we essentially have eight sensory systems. You, you've probably heard of taste, touch, smell, auditory, and what did I miss? Sight, I think. Sight, yes. Um, and there are all, we also have three other senses. Teroception, which is kind of our sense of our inner knowing of what we're feeling. Um, we have our vestibular, which is kind of our balance and orientation where we are in space. And then our proprioceptive um, sensory system, which is kind of also, again, where we are in space. So anything that is pushing against our joints, um, anything that kind of helps us to know where we are in the world. Um, and so knowing those different sensory systems is so important because they can absolutely affect our behavior and our kids' behavior. Yes. Um, our sensory experience really is behavior so it's so it's so important i think as mothers too to know that um because so much of our kids behavior and our own is driven by those sensory systems yeah and i agree we won't go into the sensory systems that much but i think that the one that was really useful for i think mothers is our interoception because so many of us because of being cut off from our own needs and dissociated from our bodies don't give ourselves a drink of water when we're really thirsty and we're so dehydrated, we're bursting to go to the loo and we don't take ourselves to the bathroom or we're kind of getting hot or we're cold. And so learning to tap into or listening to, like listening to that awareness that you were talking about earlier, just really developing an awareness for how we make things much harder for ourselves when we're disconnected. I've really noticed sometimes I used to work in financial services before I was a therapist. And I would sometimes sit at my desk and say, okay, I'll finish this project or this email or something before I go to the loo. And sometimes in motherhood, I'm like, why are you doing this? Yes. Go to the loo. <laughs> well, and I think it goes, it's so interesting that you said that it is tied into interoception, but it's this whole, you know, I think I was raised in this whole being, you know, being modeled martyrdom motherhood. So that was what was modeled to, to us was seeing our moms just, carry on and do everything for everybody else, sacrificing their own needs. And so that was modeled to us. And so then we grow up, become mothers and think, oh, this is how you mother. You give up all of your needs and you do everything for everybody else. And then it's just 
That's what happens. And then we get burnt out and resentful. Yes. I love, I think it's something that Glennon Doyle says, that our children don't need us to save them. They need to watch us save ourselves. And I think that's such a profound kind of truth around all this unlearning around essentially that in my language, I would label it as codependent, that codependency is somehow something to be celebrated. And it's really not. Right. Our kids are not gaining anything from sacrificing our own needs. And I think that that was a big revelation was when I had kids, it was kind of like, you have to give yourself everything that you want them to give themselves. So if I don't want my kids to be sacrificing their own needs and disconnected from themselves and disliking themselves, then you need to learn how to meet your own needs and like yourself. Yeah, exactly. And that modeling of, especially for women, I think, of liking ourselves and acting like we're, we're worthy of having a nap. We're worthy of not being productive. We're worthy of joy. You know, what you said, I can't remember what word you used. Oh, you said fulfilled. You focus on how to make your days more fulfilling for yourself. And that's so beautiful because when we're fulfilled and, and feeling just generally more satisfied, then we actually have much more to give. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a lot of letting go. A lot of letting go of these kind of preconceived thoughts and notions that I had about what I needed to do. And it was a lot of letting go of birthday parties and letting go of constant activities for my kids and and allowing myself to actually notice the discomfort that would come around when we didn't have much going on, when we were just together with not much to do. So a lot of letting go. Yeah, because I think what you were saying about saying no to birthday parties and um, not so many activities, there's such a tendency. I mean, we live in a dysregulated society, and I think that schools impose a lot of dysregulation on our children, and um, hundreds of activities all afternoon kind of exacerbate that. And so, yeah, I love that idea of not being overscheduled. And it is a hard thing sometimes to put in because it feels so unfamiliar. I love that you said that. It is, it's about, and we both talked about this, you know, this lonely aspect when you're in this kind of healing process. It's like so much of the people around you and the whole society is doing things and you're doing things a different way. So it's like we're up against a lot. We're up against so much um, when it comes to really being aligned with our own values and becoming conscious and healing. That thing about becoming conscious about what we're perpetuating and has what we, because we talked about kind of expectations. How have your own expectations of how you should have been or you have been maybe prior to children, how have you kind of unwound those and become conscious of what maybe patterns you used to be stuck in around whatever was most painful for you? I think that a lot of my journey of becoming conscious, and we talked a little bit about this before, um, is grieving. There has been so much grief around what I thought motherhood was going to be like. And there's so much been so much grief around the the help and support that I thought I was going to have. There's been so much grief around 
you know, the things that I know now that I didn't know back then. Um, and there's been a, so much grief for little Maggie, um, becoming conscious to the things that my kids are getting now, realizing that, you know, those are things that I didn't get as a child. So I think that there's been a lot of grieving and becoming conscious. And I think, in my view, actually, and I, I think we probably sound like we agree on this, the two most important things in, in parenting are actually uh, grieving and self-compassion. And they kind of go like grief, self-compassion, grief, self-compassion, grief, self-compassion, because, yeah, all of the things you just did, I really resonate with around that looking at what you didn't get or what I didn't get and kind of giving that to our children while at the same time doing that for ourselves and kind of growing our ability to actually do that for ourselves. And that's very beautiful. It is. And, you know, self-compassion was something that I had struggled with for a long time. And so I think it was once I had kids and started going down this path that I really realized, again, like I said, you know, if we're giving our compassion to our children, if we're giving these things to our children, we need to be giving them to ourselves. Yeah. We need to be meeting ourselves with the same compassion that we're giving to our children for many reasons. But yeah, it's so important. Yeah, and it is one of the, I think, one of the hardest things to, to take on board because a lot of the people that I work with equate self-compassion with weakness, that somehow everything is just going to go to hell if they, if they give themselves compassion. Yeah, so it's a really, or that they're not going to achieve anything or that um, it, they're letting themselves off the hook. That's what often comes up. Um, and so there's so much unlearning around that often, I think. Yeah, those inner critics, that inner critic voice can be so overpowering. And mine used to be very overpowering. And I think really meeting those voices or those parts in ourselves with curiosity um, is so important. Yeah, we. I think that the kind of I'm an integrative psychotherapist. And so one of the things that I'm always working on with clients is that we're not trying to banish any part of us because all of our parts have helped us survive and get to this place. But what you talked about, about with the inner critic, we really want to kind of lovingly say to her, okay, sweetie, I'm in charge now. Like I, as in my loving functional adult, and you, you've helped me survive and get to this point. But in motherhood, I think the inner critic literally destroys us yeah well shame i mean shame is a huge i think a huge part of a lot of our lives as trauma survivors and again shame was adaptive i mean we learned shame was self-protective so yeah it's so much so much unlearning and it takes time i think too i mean i think that's one of the things that i've had to remind myself of over and over again is like this is not linear and it's a lifelong process. There's not like a an end point to this. It's like an ever-changing, ever-evolving process. Yeah, and I am, um, there was an episode this week of this podcast on shame. And I think that it's such a, um, a sticky subject in terms of we, sh- we have shame about having shame. And I don't think it's that much acknowledged, even though I've heard Brené Brown say this like a number of times, I've maybe read it somewhere as well, but that she always says that shame and perfectionism are um, two sides of the same coin. So if we're perfectionist, it's because we're trying to get away from our own sense of shame, of like our unworthiness, and that 
um, somehow our life doesn't matter that much. But that sense of, of chronic or toxic shame is at the heart of, of like all dysfunctional families, really. Absolutely. That sense of, it's not that we need to do better or get things to be more polished. It's actually that we need to address the shame and to shine a light on that to say, yes, it's, tele- it's not talking the truth. Absolutely. We also live in a society where, you know, we're so isolated from each other. You know, I think that if mothers were, if we were together more and we had more of a village, that being able to share our stories, be able to share with other mothers our experiences would help to lessen the shame. Yes, I think you're so right. And I think that's one of the reasons why Instagram can be really helpful um, when we, when someone else says, this is what happens in my house. And then you kind of breathe a sigh of relief and go, oh, okay, that's okay. I went for a dinner with some mums of the school that my children used to go to, and we were talking about children's sleep. So my twins are, they will be seven later this year. And I always thought that at some point I would stop getting interrupted at night or that, you know, everyone would just sleep through and it wouldn't be, they wouldn't be coming to us. But one of our daughters sleeps with us most nights and the other one sometimes I go and sleep with all, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of a messy and ongoing journey around it. And I've chosen that's in line with our values, but how we want to parent, we've, we've, my husband and I often in discussion about this, about does it work and how we want to support them and everything. And, um, but sometimes I feel shame about it. I'm like, like I've really somehow missed the boat with this. <laughs> they, I mean, they are highly sensitive, so they do need support around this. But I do then also think like, oh my word, I've done something wrong. And, um, but at this table, nearly everyone said that, um, so kids of similar ages and a bit younger, that siblings either slept together often in the same room or sometimes they got into bed with each other or they were sleeping with one or either parent, you know, one parent with one child. It was once actually someone had built like a vulnerability bridge by sharing, oh yeah, that happens in our house. And then everyone else said, oh yeah, some version of the same story. And I found that so kind of just beautiful and so holding. That is. Yeah, I recently... I resonate so much with with what you're saying about sleep because I didn't ever sleep train, but I definitely did not follow my own intuition as a mother around sleep in the beginning. And so I definitely did not hold and rock and snuggle my babies as much as I did with my last. And so there's a lot of grief around that. But I think, and my kids are all highly sensitive. So, you know, you see, you hear from everybody else around you, oh, you're supposed to sleep train, you're supposed to do all of these other things. And so you think you're doing it wrong. And so you force yourself to do things a certain way. But I so resonate with the sleep thing because I I recently did a poll on my Instagram and I asked mothers, you know, do you still need to sit in your, do you still need to be with your child until they fall asleep? And it was like an overwhelming percentage. And I was shocked. I mean, I, I I thought that I was the only one who still had to sit in my kids' rooms until they fell asleep. But, you know, it's actually, it's pretty normal for little kids to want their parents close by. So I think, you know, we get these different messages from society. And it's really like coming back to our own intuition, because even in those early years, it didn't feel right. I wanted to hold my babies, but everyone was like, oh, you're going to create bad habits and all of this other stuff. And it's so easy to listen to everyone else's voices other than your own when you've experienced trauma. Yeah, I think that 
Oh, there's so much, so much what I want to pick up on what you've just said, but I think for when we've had trauma, like holding onto our own voice and knowing we, that we've got a valid voice and that we're not powerless and that we can change things is so important. And I mean, it's also a long, like an ongoing learning. And what you said about that they need us when they go to sleep. My twins used to sleep in the same room and then we had another single bed in that room and we would lie on the bed until they went to sleep. And now they're in separate rooms. So now I have to sit outside because otherwise they get upset if I'm in either one of these rooms. <laughs> and it's like the biggest time of separation. And there's so much connection often or so much like, I mean, it does sometimes really drive me absolutely mad because they want like, like, oh, I'm hot, even though it's freezing here. Please can I have a face stuff on my head? <laughs> can I have a cold pad? And I often have to reframe it for myself, even as I sit there to just be like, this is because they don't want to disconnect. Absolutely. I know it's the hardest. I mean, it's for sure the hardest part of the day because it's when we finally want our own time to not be touched, to have finally have some of our own alone time. And they are like, this is going to be the longest time away from you. Please stay. So it's so hard. <laughs> oh, yeah, I really feel like that. And I think that I don't know if you experienced this with twins, but in the twin world, um, the thing about sleep, they're very focused on trying to get them to do exactly the same thing. And some of the advice that I got given was just so disconnecting. I remember someone, I, I did go to a sleep talk because I was kind of, I'm not even really sure why. I think it was maybe because I wanted to meet some other mothers actually, but they said that if you go down this route of, of training and someone, like a baby vomits because they get so upset, you must just change their sheets and not make eye contact. And that stuff absolutely breaks my heart because the tools of attachment are our eyes and our voice and our and our like our bodies and um, our gentle touch. I don't know. I just found that so distressing in some ways. It's kind of the absolute antithesis of being present. Absolutely. I got the same messages. I had somebody. I, we actually had a night nurse um, for the first couple of months with our twins, and she would tell me the same thing. And also, don't hold your babies too much. She said those exact words, don't hold your babies too much. Otherwise, they will get too used to it. And back then, I didn't know. I didn't know all these things that I know now. And now thinking back to that, I'm like, well, that's great. I want my babies to know that, you know, I'm going to be there for them and that they can expect me to hold them. So it was kind of like this heartbreaking realization of what I didn't know back then and what I know now. So, yeah, now anytime one of my twins wants to snuggle and cuddle with me, it's like this reliving that, that part of my life. And I'm so pleased we've touched on this because I think that there's such a thing about when you're a perfectionist person who's had trauma in their life and have got nervous system dysregulation, early motherhood is exceptionally challenging for many, many, many reasons. And there's often so much shame that comes up later for what we didn't know. So, I mean, we obviously don't know what we don't know, but I think there's so much, such an important piece around being so tender with ourselves, because I deeply think that we don't know the depth of our own pain until we become mothers. And the dysregulation that's like lodged in our system doesn't really get an opportunity to be shown before we have children, I don't think. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I think that I was so caught up in making sure the baby nursery was beautiful and making sure that I had all of these, you know, all of my email addresses for baby showers. And I took a class on like how to change diapers with my husband. 
there was no knowledge, no education around trauma, around, you know, complex trauma and how these things can come up after you become a mother. And so I had no idea what I was doing on top of all of this exacerbated trauma. I think complex trauma is much, much more widespread than we know. I mean, I believe that to be to be the case. That's what, what I see clinically. The kind of the relational and attachment trauma that's happened for so many of us is often pre-verbal. So we have this experience of thinking, oh, I had such a happy childhood, or I got what I needed. But really, there was so much emotional neglect. In defense, I guess, of previous generations, I don't think that anyone has known how important um, really tending to emotions is and being present for feelings and holding space and validation has been. But um, we're an emotionally neglected society. Absolutely. And I think that emotional neglect is one of those kind of more insidious kinds of neglect because everything appears like you're fine, you're successful, you have a job, you have a car, you have what seems to be a great life, but you never had that emotional nurturance and connection that you needed so deeply that affects your entire life. So it's really like redefining what success actually is, because my idea of success was something completely different than what it is now. Yes, I totally agree with you about that. My first career was in financial services, and I specifically chose that because in my family, it was important to be clever. And um, I thought I actually wanted to be a teacher, but I thought there's no point in doing that because I need to put myself like under the money tree. That's what I sort of thought. So financial services is where that's going to happen, basically. And I can see how much of my decision making was trauma driven, essentially, um, and shame driven, actually, so that I could kind of get away from the shame. What do you define success as now for you? So what it used to be was accomplishing, just all about outward accomplishments. And now for me, I think for me, it's like social, emotional well-being, connection, and presence. Those are like my, my pillars of, of success, I'd say. How lovely. What about you? For me, it's about how I feel each day. So I want to be, I want to feel in a connected enough place. Um, so that I can be present with my children and actually enjoy them. Because for me, it was also all about accomplishment and about the next thing. And I never actually stopping to notice what I have done. I've always just shifted goalposts um, and moved on to the next thing. And I'm trying to really do that thing of kind of savoring where I've got to, thinking that's enough. And that, like there's a part of me who would really like to move from where we live and have a much, much quieter life. And I still feel the pull of kind of glossiness or sort of shininess because that's kind of how I've survived, I think. But it's most of all feeling kind of connected and um, being with my children and being with my husband and noticing like the joy and the simple things and actually how much abundance I already have in my life. Because when you're constantly focused on shifting the goalposts and looking forward. It's so easy. I, I find it so easy to just not even notice what I'm living in, you know, to not even savor where my children are, to savor. I always say they sparkly eyes because I look into their eyes and I'm like, this is life right here. There is nothing else. I love that. Yeah. 
but I dip in and out of that knowing. Yeah. And I think our kids are like the perfect little reflections of like what we need to be savoring. Like when we see them so present in what they're doing and so fascinated by the, you know, the stream or the little raindrop on the roof, it's like those little joys in life that we don't even notice anymore. My kids have really shown a light on all of those things that I had just completely forgotten about. Yeah. But yeah, I love what you said about just savoring what you're in right now and like letting that be enough. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, even in in the hard seasons, I'm trying to do that. Before we kind of close um, our chat now, um, is there anything else you'd like to say? What feels important for you to say about any of what we've been talking about or about anything we haven't got to? I think just really, you know, I'll end with just like this acceptance, like what you said about the good enough, just allowing what you're in to be enough. And like you said, you were about to talk about like the messy and the hard, slowing down enough to recognize that it doesn't make, it's not bad, right or wrong. You know, I think for me for so long that I've, I've lived in this black or white thinking so really just taking things for what they are and not trying to categorize it in our minds as this is bad. This is because I'm struggling. That makes me a bad mom or because I'm, because this is messy. Sometimes things just are and that's okay. Yes. And I think that it can be so easy. And I also get trapped in this when I'm trying to kind of like simplify things down to a basic principle. It can be so easy to get away from how complex we are as human beings how complex our children are, how complex our relationships are, how we're lodged in a web, which is also so complex. And we can't neaten it up. I've noticed how hard I've tried to neaten things up. And that thing which you said about judging whether it's good or bad, because our children think we're wonderful and enough. Even when we're sitting in our heads thinking, God, I'm a crap mom, God, I'm a crap mom, I need to sort this situation out, blah, 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 blah. They just want to be with us and, and be in our presence and be seen by us. Absolutely. And sometimes that is the hardest thing. Getting out of our heads <laughs> the hardest thing. <laughs> Maggie, thank you so much. This has been an absolute honor and a joy to um, hear some more of your story and share space with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much, Kath. I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.